So people remember that salt and pepper song, right? I'm not going to be alienating an entire generation of listeners with this, am I? Oh well, here goes the show. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, this is Rob. On this episode, I'm going to be reviewing Kubo and the Two Strings, the new film from Leica Animation, as well as running down some of my favorite stop-motion animated films in a brand new segment. So before we get into any of that, though, I want to touch base on a recent film that I, that I saw. I should really, I feel like I'd say touch base so much on the early, uh, earliest segment of the podcast that I, I really should just call it the, the base touch segment or something. Um, you know, the creative license and all that, it's, uh, you know, the process takes time, so we'll see what happens down the line. But for now, I just wanted to talk about Zoolander 2. I finally got a chance to catch up with this one. I know it came out earlier this year, I think February or early March, around there, and man, it was bad, guys. And I want, it just made me, it made me really just want to shut it off and, and watch the first one, because the first one is so surprising and so quirky and, and funny and offbeat, and it, it just seemed to flow a little, okay, a lot more naturally in the first one. The second one, the sequel just, everything felt so stilted, just constant references back to what worked in the first one, um, you know, without any really substantive joke or, you know, anything to add to the proceedings. It was mostly a greatest hits of the original Zoolander, and... Crap, uh, crammed with even more excessive cameos, most of which were unfunny other than to be like, ah, Neil deGrasse Tyson, ah, Kiefer Sutherland, ah, you know, Justin Bieber, because that one was in the trailers at least. Um, and they didn't really, yeah, just nothing popped for me. The performances were flat, the script was dull, uh, the pacing was a mess. I mean, the main villain doesn't come in until over halfway through the film. And doesn't even really do anything that interesting. Just sort of shows up, has a has a, a you know a, an extended sequence with with Derek Zoolander, and then sort of fades like f- like fades into like just random baddie mode, just like barking orders and and uh, you know trying to pull off some ridiculous scheme. There were some interest. There was a, an interesting plot hiding within this. Um, the main villains, revenge driven. Uh, scheme was a little bit what you know if they had executed it better could have been an interesting an interesting concept had they elongated it out throughout the course of the film and not not bogged it down with so many subplots that we didn't really care about and it's just this the film is just seems like it's been it's it's indicative of a trend we're seeing now where now we've moved on from 1980s and 1990s nostalgia we're now in early 2000s nostalgia because we have this film, we have um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2, which I, I didn't see because I honestly wasn't really that big a fan of the first one. Barbershop The Next Cut, which I actually did hear is the exception and is actually a really good film. And then, you know, a couple years ago, Anchorman 2, which I also thought was terrible. Just, I don't know why we, we keep going back. I mean, I know why. We keep going back to these, like, beloved properties, hoping that we're going to, you know, re-energize the brand and instead, I feel like they're dilute. They, they, these filmmakers are diluting the legacy that they had set out with that original release. 
if Zoolander 2 and Angerman 2 are any indication of the kind of sequels, the way that people are approaching comedy sequels, and I think it's a genre-specific thing in a lot of ways. I mean, granted, Independence Day Resurgence was also pretty bad, but then you have things like Mad Max Fury Road and Star Wars The Force Awakens and Creed, where these uh, dramas or sci-fi or fantasy or action franchises are easily rebooted or reintroduced uh, with a long-awaited sequel. But it successfully captures, you know, longtime fans and casual moviegoers. And I feel like films like Anchorman and Zoolander, comedy sequels specifically, are just so dead set on kind of rinse and repeat on the same jokes, on the um, trying to give the original audience what it what it wants, and basically, you know, hoping to recapture lightning in a bottle a second time by, you know redoing the same steps basically um and it doesn't it doesn't work that way with comedy you have to bring something new to the table you have to innovate and you know you can have references back to the first film obviously because it's a sequel but when they're so shoehorned in and the same musical cue is supposed to you know spark that thought in your mind of oh this is just like that scene from the first one something's missing if your big if your biggest moments your most memorable moments hinge on on uh, blatant callbacks so I've actually been thinking, been planning about doing a feature on comedy sequels that did work because they're so few and far between. I feel like a lot of them fall into the same trap as Zoolander and Anchorman. But I don't know, not to the same extent. You have something like Jump Street. The 22 Jump Street was, to me, possibly even superior to the original. Then you have the Austin Powers sequels. Uh, the third which I know a lot of people have more issues with, and I, and I understand that. The second of which was also doing a lot of rehashing of the same things, but still managed to work. They brought enough new, uh, new characters, new storylines to that, and new dimension to the, to, the, um, to the characters, especially the villains. I mean, that's the film where Dr. Evil really shined. Um, so, you know, keep an eye out for that. Uh, probably when we got this covered, I did pitch that to them at one point, so I'll probably get back to that when it becomes timely. But I just wanted to take a second and sort of vent about uh, Zoolander 2 and wonder to know... You know, if, if any of you guys also saw it and had similar reactions, send me an email at robert at crookedtable.com or, or tweet me at crookedtable. But yeah, comedy sequels, man, they, they're in a bad place right now. And that's what really grinds my gears. So moving on to my review of Kubo and the Two Strings, the new film from Leica Animation. Now, I should probably say up front, I'm a big fan of what Leica's been doing the last few years. If you're not familiar with their work, these are the people that did Coraline, Paranorman, and The Box Trolls. Those first two, I feel like, are, are um, probably their better releases thus far, uh, Coraline specifically. But Kubo is almost right up on par with Paranorman, um, in my estimation. I know a lot of people, it's been getting a lot of critical acclaim from people, but I've actually seen some backlash on social media, which I think is interesting. Some people being like, I don't understand what, what critics are seeing in this. It's dull, lifeless, and all that. Because I didn't get that from the film at all. Um, th- sure, there are moments that are slower, but I think, you know, given that it's heavily influenced by anime and Japanese culture and some of that, I feel like th- the film does a decent job of capturing that and bringing that to mainstream audiences in a way that, you know, most casual moviegoers probably really aren't familiar with. To 
give you just a general idea of what the story is about. We follow a young boy named Kubo who is one eye. Um, that's part of his backstory that will not be uh, revealed here for, for the sake of spoilers. Um, and he sort of just ends up on a magical quest to reclaim these ancient relics that you know he needs to, def- to protect himself from this evil force that's sort of you know bearing down on him. Now the reason that that sounds incredibly vague is because I didn't know a lot of what this movie was about going in. I knew it was from Laika, and that was pretty much all I needed to know to be intrigued. And a lot of the plot elements tie directly into Kubo's backstory, his family life, is, you know, the mythology behind, you know, behind his birth, essentially. And, you know, the film, the film really centers on that from beginning to end in a, in a very uh, intense way. Uh, In a lot of ways, the film probably is a little too uh, graphic, not graphic, but scary or dark in tone for young children. But the visuals and the, the script has a, the, the visuals are so impressive, and the script has a sense of lightness to it throughout, especially from the character of Beetle, voiced by Matthew McConaughey, that it should be mostly palatable to American audiences. I thought Art Parkinson of Game of Thrones fame, I thought he did a tremendous job as the title character. Charlize Theron was really great as Monkey, who's probably the most interesting and compelling character in the film. And Rooney Mara really knocked it out of the park as these like twin uh, witches who hunt down Kubo and who he has to contend with on multiple occasions. The film does sort of lack in uh, plot development or plot content because it really is just sort of this singular quest. And sort of along the way, there's, you know, there's different creatures that they come across, different tasks that they have to complete, etc., etc., but there really, really isn't a lot more to the story than that. It's more developing the character, developing the theme of spirituality, of mysticism, of storytelling, which plays a very key role in the, in the film. There's even a couple of different sequences where Kubo actually tells his village a story using you know, his, his uh, instrument and just sort of uh, inspiring these uh, origami papers to magically, you know, take the shape of the story that he's telling. And that those sequences probably stand out as some of the most impressive um, from a visual and design standpoint. But I mean, from beginning to end, this might be like his best looking film thus far. And I feel like it's a fun adventure for families. Though I, you know, I would caution against small, small children, you know, gauge your child's, you know, comfort level with that kind of thing. But there's nothing super violent in it that that would really grow, you know, really upset parents. Uh, It's definitely more appropriate than Sausage Party, which I talked about last week. And um, yeah, it, 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 it's probably one of the best animated films this year behind maybe the Disney, the Disney movies. Uh, Zootopia and Finding Dory, but it's it's definitely up there, and I would say this is definitely a shoe-in for the Oscar for Best Animated Feature, at least for a nomination, possibly not a win. I mean, like I said, it does have to contend with Disney, and I think 10 out of the last 15 years, it's been either Disney or Pixar. But Kubo is... Kubo and the Two Strings is another winner for Laika, and, you know, I feel like those of you that are into fantasy adventure will really enjoy it. Those of you who are into anime and 
Japanese culture in general will really, really enjoy it. So I'm going to go a solid four out of five for this one. Definitely check out Kubo and the Two Strings. It didn't do this as well this weekend as many of us who loved it would have hoped. So hopefully, you know, it'll, it'll have some staying power in the weeks ahead. That's my review of Kubo and the Two Strings. We're going to move into a new segment, as you know, from Kubo and last week's The Little Prince. I have a bit of a soft spot for stop-motion animated films, and so I thought for this brand new segment, we would uh, kind of delve into some of the stop-motion animated films of years past. So, to get started, let's just, um, let's talk about six. Let's talk about six, baby. Let's talk about flicks and me. Let's talk about what the good films and the bad films are to me. Let's talk about six. Let's talk about six. So coming in at number six, Anomalisa. I actually just saw this really prior to this recording, just like a day or two before I, I recorded this episode. Just because I wanted to sneak it in there um, before I did this list, just because it, it did have so much critical acclaim and Oscar nomination and blah, blah, blah. So I definitely wanted to check that out. Anomalisa was a very interesting film. It's an R-rated one, so it stands apart from the other films on this list in that regard. But um, David Thewlis does the voice of Michael Stone. He's a writer, sort of listless and feeling like can't really connect to everyone. Um, until he meets Lisa, voiced by Jennifer Jason Leigh. And they, these two sort of ha- have an instant connection. The film, like in a way similar to Kubo doesn't really have that much plot-wise going on. It's really more of, more of capturing the kind of mundane, absurdist things that we all deal with in life. Um, one detail that really stood out to me was he's in his hotel room, or he's trying to get into his hotel room. So he's doing the card key, and he has to do it like three times. And this happens twice. He has to do it like three times uh, in order to actually access the room. And I feel like that's just something that just goes to show how Charlie Kaufman, who's the director or co-director and screenwriter on this, and he's the guy that wrote Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind, Being John Malkovich, things like that. So you know it's going to be a little trippy and weird. Uh, he's just so good at taking the ridiculous things that we deal in life and making them and putting them through a very, a very kind of off-the-wall lens. And Anomalisa is no different. But essentially, the film's trying to cover, you know, feeling disconnected from the from the world, feeling like. The world is out to get you, and, and, and really, to me, that those type of people that kind of go from one relationship to the next, always searching for that ineffable, quote, something, and, uh, you know, becoming perpetually di- disappointed as a result every single time. And it just kind of leads to this sort of lost and meandering feeling in their life, like, what is their purpose? What are they supposed to do? Who are they? They, they kind of search for meaning in the people around them. And I feel like Anomalisa really honed in on that in a very interesting and creative way. So definitely highly recommended. Um, Charlie Kaufman's Anomalisa. Let's talk about six. Coming in at number five, Fantastic Mr. Fox. This is the film from Wes Anderson, writer-director Wes Anderson. For those of you who, like the three of you who don't know who he is, Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore, Pretty much any movie over the last 10 or 15 years that has been really quirky, really sort of bizarre, but in a, in a, like a whimsical way and uh, has sort of a fable feel to it. 
so by that rationale, Wes Anderson was a tremendous choice to direct a stop-motion animated film because they sort of naturally have that sensibility to them already. This one's based on the book by Roald Dahl, who's most famous for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And it's really kind of remarkable how easily Anderson's style fits into Dahl's book. In the story, George Clooney plays the title character, Meryl Streep plays his wife, and of course you get a smattering of Anderson regulars, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, uh, Willem Dafoe, are all kind of make appearances as various animal characters. Jason Schwartzman, in particular, uh, delivers a really standout performance as Mr. Fox's son, son Ash. And the film has, has, I mean, it essentially chronicles Fox's sort of uh, coming out of retirement. He's, he's essentially steals things, and he comes out of retirement to, to orchestrate sort of one last big uh, heist, if you will. And the fact that they got George Clooney to do the voice, it really feels sort of like an animated Ocean's Eleven in some respects. Of course, his plan spirals out of control, and it has much wider uh, implications for his animal brethren, but it really plays off in such an interesting way that the film has so much personality and style and dry wit to it that anyone that's a fan of Wes Anderson's films will really love it, and anyone who's a fan of these kinds of, like, more quiet uh, or, you know, more slow, slower-paced sort of... Um, just relaxed, very confident, family-oriented storytelling will really enjoy this. Last year, perfect example, the Peanuts movie, sort of fits within that same sort of pacing, but uh, this one brings Anderson's signature wit and all the all the benefit that stop motion could bring to that story is really is really really comes into play here. Let's talk about six. Number four, Wallace and Gromit: The Curse of the Were Rabbit. Now, I have to say, Ardman Animation Studios is probably another one of the go-to uh, studios when it comes to creating stop-motion animated films on the regular. Unlike Leica, they've sort of dabbled in computer-animated stuff. They did Flushed Away, they did Arthur Christmas. But between Chicken Run in 2000, which was another contender for this list, by the way, and Shaun the Sheep last year, they put out this one. This is the feature-length adaptation of the short films featuring cheese-loving Wallace and his loyal dog Gromit and the film essentially plays off as sort of a parody of horror films. Uh, if the title didn't give it away there's a were-rabbit involved that's an oversized rabbit that sort of wreaks havoc on the crops in this small town where apparently the vegetable festival is a, like the big event of the year. So it comes down to Wallace and Gromit to solve the mystery of the were-rabbit and sort of save the town. Of course, Helena Bonham Carter does the voice of Miss Toddington, who is the, you know, sort of lady about town that Wallace takes a liking to. So he has a sort of an emotional investment in solving the case as well. But this film, I feel like, for some reason, hasn't really... Maybe it's because it's very, it's very British and it's in its humor, and I mean that in the best possible way. It's got a very unique sensibility to it. It actually has Ray Fine in a supporting role similar to Kubo. So clearly he enjoyed his, his, uh, his experience doing this film. But it, it brings just the right balance of funny and sort of 
sort of eerie without ever crossing into scary territory. Like I was saying earlier about Kubo, Kubo has some legitimately dark imagery in it. Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit, is way more playful than that, but it still touch on, touches on enough of those hallmarks of the horror genre to be an effective parody of it. Let's talk about six. Coming in at number three, we have Coraline. As I mentioned earlier, this is the first film from Leica Animation, and in my estimation, it's still their best. Even though, you know, Kubo and the Two Strings is getting heaps upon heaps of critical praise, I still feel like Coraline is the most singular vision to come out of Leica thus far. Based on the book by Neil Gaiman, directed by Henry Selleck, um, who also did James and Giant Peach, Nightmare Before Christmas, he... He really, it's just the perfect combination of director, material, and visual style. The, the likes of which are almost unparalleled in, in animation in general, uh, to me. And not for nothing, but this, the film also really proves that Nightmare Before Christmas wasn't entirely a Tim Burton thing, that Henry Selleck had plenty of his own to bring to the table, and it's just really... Uh, unfortunate that that film has been labeled Tim Burton's Night Before Christmas because a lot of people don't even realize how how uh, how deeply Selleck was involved. In this particular one, we get lots of creepy image, imagery uh, involving this other dimension where the young Coraline, voiced by Dakota Fanning, finds herself sort of the target of this mysterious force. And it's just, it's just really chilling. I rewatched it again recently. It's both imaginative, fantastic, uh, fantastical, wondrous, but also really creepy and, and sort of disturbing on, on some levels. I, I watched it with Kai, for the, who, told, who saw it only for the first time the other, you know, the other week or so. And she really liked it a lot. And she's not coming from the bias that I'm coming from as far as stop motion or all this. And she, it was really effective for her. So the, the voice casting as far as Fanning and Terry Hatcher, who's really good in this film as Coraline's mother and another character, who we're trying to avoid as many spoilers, but let's just call her her other mother. Uh, just fantastic across the board. There's a few sequences where the focus is on supporting characters. It's like a little bit too extensively um, to the point where you're like, okay, what do I care about this? But it does come into play later on as Coraline sort of comes across sort of a skewed version of that, of those same characters. Um, but I mean, Coraline is definitely one of the best stop motion films out there. Leica's finest. It's a crowning achievement on every level, and if, if you haven't seen it now, you, by, by now, I mean, I'd definitely check it out. 2009 in general was a great film. Uh, 2009 in general was a great year for animated films, between Coraline and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs and Fantastic Mr. Fox, and if you expand that out to family films based on children's books, you also have Where the Wild Things Are. It's a really strong year for very moody, uh, subtextual family entertainment, and Coraline definitely fits the bill. Let's talk about six. Coming in at number two, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Now, technically, I'm, I'm breaking the rules a little bit because this is not really a feature. This is a 47-minute special that aired on television in 1964, and if you're existing on this planet, chances are you've either heard of it or are familiar with it in general, some of the songs, 
or you're like me and you've grown up watching this every year, every holiday season for your entire life. So, of course, this film is basically a dramatization of Rudolph the Reno's Reindeer Song. You see him with the reindeer games. You see him sort of become Santa's, uh, you know, the lead of Santa's sleigh, thanks to his red nose, sort of saving the day. And But this film brings so much to it that isn't in that song, from, you know, the elf who wants to be a dentist to... Yukon Cornelius, yippee, to uh, a really kind of dickish version of Santa Claus and a entire island of misfit toys led by King Moonracer, uh, the lion with a pair of wings who, who stills, I just want to, I'm going to find it, I'm going to have like name one of my children, King Moonracer, I've, I've threatened to do that every time I watch this, it's just like, it's the coolest name ever. Um, the film has great music across the board. Not only Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the title song, but We're a Couple of Misfits, There's Always Tomorrow, Silver and Gold. It goes on and on and on. Every song in there is is really uh, memorable and very earwormy to the point that, you know, I'm not ashamed to say I have the soundtrack because I love this show slash film that much. It's one of my favorite uh animated, well, it's one of my favorite holiday specials, period, and I feel like this show, and the, some of the other Rankin-Bass ones from back in the day, in the early 60s and the 70s, I feel like they have been so influential in really um, warming up audiences and viewers to this visual style. I feel like without those shows and the claymation style that they pioneered, well, not necessarily pioneered, but they, they popularized. I feel like without them sort of setting the foundation, it would be a lot harder for all these other stop-motion animated films to to sort of touch base on something primitive and uh, nostalgic about stop-motion animation. There's something very base, basely satisfying about that particular style. And I feel like Rankin-Bass films, really epitomized by this one, were so instrumental in making that a thing. Let's talk about six. Coming in at number one, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Wow. Uh, where do we even start with this one? This is the 1993 film produced and story by, credit goes to Tim Burton, directed by Henry Selleck as I mentioned earlier, who also did Coraline, and the less satisfying James and the Giant Peach, which I briefly reviewed to make sure I wasn't worthy of including here. And it's not. It's it's definitely the weakest of Selleck's stop-motion films to date. But Nightmare Before Christmas is just a masterpiece on every level. Visually stunning. Um, the music is unforgettable. I feel like Danny Elfman's had a, quite a storied career, but to me, Nightmare Before Christmas is like neck and neck with Beetlejuice as his crowning achievement to date. Um, what's this? Making Christmas. This is Halloween. Jack's Lament. There's so many beautiful, like hauntingly beautiful songs in the film. Not to mention such rich characters as Jack Skellington, Oogie Boogie, and Sally, and uh, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. There's just so much going on. Or is it Lock, Shock? It's Lock, Shock, and Barrel. Lock, Shock, and Barrel. There's so much going on in this film, and, and, and it very much 
feels like a cohesive vision. I feel like that's the problem with some of these animated films, especially stop motion. I feel like sometimes they, they're sort of at odds with themselves. Like the visual style wants to go dark, but the story is trying to lighten things up. But this is specifically an issue that I had with James and the Giant Peach, which is ironically from the same director as Nightmare Before Christmas. It, it's the story elements and the, the look of the live action and the stop motion segments of that film both lean towards something really dark and sort of, uh, sort of like de borderline depressing. But then it has like they break into song randomly about eating the inside of the peach, and it it just feels tonally off. Nightmare Before Christmas probably gets that more right than almost any other animated film I've ever seen. The music is sort of mournful in like a cheery way if that makes sense because they are after all in Halloween town so they're not all bright and happy but they are all bright and happy in their own way it creates this this unique feel uh, for that culture and to me the subtext of the film really is about what happens when two cultures sort of collide and you know one tries to assimilate the other and tries to do it their way not really understanding that they're not they're not really honoring the spirit of that. They're they're perverting it and twisting it and to fit their own their own view of the world. So from Danny Elfman's score to the visuals to the voice acting by Chris Sarandon, yes, uh, Prince Humperdinck from Princess Bride, and also uh, Jerry Jerry Danvers, I forget, I think his name is, I forget, from Fright Night. That Chris Sarandon. Uh, Catherine O'Hara and, and just a host of others just Nightmare Before Christmas is not only one of my favorite it's not only my favorite stop motion animated film it's one of my favorite animated films period and honestly one of my favorite pil films period I, I just I love it that much and even though a lot of the people in my life don't seem to understand why it is very quirky and very much uh, it's its own thing so it, it clearly is not for everyone but it's one of those films that for the people that can, it connects to, it really connects. It really hits home and just brings something so dark and beautiful. It, it's, it reminds me of the Kanye West album, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. That's exactly, that, that's exactly what The Nightmare Before Christmas is. It's that good. But it's still palatable to kids for the most part. It has some darker imagery and some, you know, some dark moments here and there, but it's not, it never goes too far where you're like, oh shit, I can't show my kids this. If, 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 for that, for that, you go to Anomalisa because there you get stop motion sex scenes and all kinds of, a lot of fucks throwing out. But Nightmare Before Christmas, it's a perfect cross-section between adult and families, between light and dark, between beautiful and kind of creepy and it's a film unlike any other, so of course it has to top my list of the best stop-motion animated films. So that's this episode. Those are my favorite stop-motion animated films. What is, what's your favorite stop-motion animated movie? Did you see Kubo and the Two Strings? Would that have made your list of the top six? I sort of disqualified it because it literally just came out and I devoted enough time to it earlier in this episode, but you know, if it had been, if it had come out last year, it might have been in contention for my top six. So let me know what your favorite stop motion animated film is. You can reach me on Twitter at Crooked Table. Send me an email, Robert at CrookedTable.com. Of course, you can see more uh, podcasts, videos, reviews, and other movie related goodies over at CrookedTable.com. 
that'll be all for this episode. Not 100% sure what I'm going to talk about next episode. Uh, I have to see what's coming out. I know the new horror film Don't Breathe is coming out from Fede Alvarez, who did the Evil Dead film. So maybe I'll parlay that into another Let's Talk About Six. Let me know what you think about this format. And as always, thanks for listening. And until next time, roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little (laughs) KED.